Amen. As the lights come up, why don't you find your way to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Joel, chapter 2. That part of your Bible is full of white space. All right. Very few sermons preached on this text. But there's some really good stuff, especially if in reality or in uh, ideology you feel a little nauseous. Watching that video, I was looking at the waves, and I was like, whoa. Right, you know, life can make you pretty, pretty motion sick. The things you go through, the life that you live, the struggles that you have. If you're struggling today, you're in a good place because we have answers. We have real answers for real people with real problems. If you think that you have no problems and everything's great, well, maybe this message won't mean as much to you. But for those of us that acknowledge um, the motion sickness of life. It doesn't go according to our plan. It doesn't go according to, even when things are great, we still feel something's wrong. Right? If that's where you're at, you're in a good place. The kingdom of heaven is not for well-meaning people. It's for the desperate. And last week we saw that when you turn to God in desperation, he turns to you. Now we're going to see the other side of that, the issue or the, the blessing of deliverance. When God... Uh, turns in deliverance, he trains us. You know, you haven't had the ultimate deliverance necessarily. If you've been delivered from sin and its power, that's phenomenal. The cross is something we look back to and it provides forgiveness when there could be no other hope other than it. But there is a crown of glory that's coming. In this text, we'll talk about the ultimate day of the Lord when Jesus rules on planet earth and takes the throne of his, of, of his father David, right, the son of David takes the throne in Jerusalem and he conquers the nations. That's this text today where your smaller deliverance, it might be huge in your mind, when shadowed by the mountain of God's deliverance of the planet, it takes a different, a different feel, a different perspective. So that's what we're going to look at today. There's a story that goes with this. A man is the only survivor of a wreck and he's thrown onto an uninhabited island. After a while, he ban manages to build himself a hut in which he placed the little that he had, he placed it in that hut. He went hunting one particular day to find himself coming back to a large cloud of smoke. His hut had caught on fire. He left his fire pit a little too close to the hut, and the whole thing, everything that he owned, all that he had to his name went up in smoke. And of course, he was, as you can imagine, horrified. All of it had gone up in smoke. The worst had happened. But that which seemed to have been the worst actually was in reality the best. Because the next day, a ship arrived, and they said, we saw your smoke signal. You know, that's the kind of rhythm of this text. That your desperation and the judgment that you feel actually provides in the movement of it. It might make you a little motion sick, but the movement of it, it provides your deliverance. Jesus said... All things, Paul said, all things work together for the good of those who love him. That everything in your life is being orchestrated to do something in your life. All right, our lives are in God's hands. Persecution, danger, sword. God is for us. He is with us. And all those things take shape in our lives. And we're able to see the benefit. Is the thing that you're going through right now, does it feel like judgment? Or can you see it in light of what God's doing through it? Has that cross 
that you bear hasn't become a crown yet? Can you even see how it could be used? To take that pollen, to take that lemon, and to turn it into honey is, and turn it into lemonade is one of the great movements of the Christian's life, that we are opportunistic and we see the problem as an opportunity. Can you see it that way? Today's message for you is to get you to move that direction. I don't know if it'll move you the whole way, but my goal is to move you a little down the field, a little down the field to see your struggle as something that'll make you stronger, to see the agony in light of the glory of God as something God's doing in your life, right? How have we said it in the past? God is not so much interested in your comfort as he is your character. God is not so much interested in your happiness as he is your holiness. And the thing that you go to, it's a momentary struggle that produces something you can get no other way. And this text will point to that. How do you respond in trouble? That was last week, right? In times of desperation, when life gets overwhelming, there seems to be so much stress in life, you as a follower of God calls upon him in sorrow, in fasting, stopping everything and seeking the Lord, not letting go of him until he shows you what he's doing. Right, when that job that you hope for doesn't materialize, when that unexpected illness comes upon you, when that relationship goes sour, when life seems in a cycle of throwing you curveballs, unexpected difficulties, unexpected stresses, and it stretches you and you have to adapt to it, the follower of Jesus turns to God, acknowledging that he is the answer. Well, now let's go the other direction. What do you do when the deliverance comes? How do you respond to deliverance when that job that you were hoping for doesn't materialize, but the greater job comes? When that relationship goes sour, but it provides you an opportunity to meet someone else, to have a new connection. When that unexpected illness actually provides you an opportunity for a step of faith into deeper character in the middle of your crisis. A relationship, illness, a struggle, a job, a financial issue, when you are moved to the next stage, when you are delivered, how do you respond to that? Well, we're gonna look at that today. You see it up on the screen there. When we turn in desperation, he turns to us. That was last week in the second half. Starting in verse 18 of chapter two, we see some marvelous things that God does to deliver. And when he turns to us in deliverance, that trains our hopes, that trains our hopes. So much of what we call hope is temporary. It's fleeting. It, at its most, it lasts only for this, last, last, this lifetime. But the hope that we're going to see here is for the end of days, and it's eternal. Jesus said um, that he came to give life and to give it abundantly. But that's only part of what he did. He came to give you abundant life. But I think God is more interested in the eternal life that moves you to a place of deep character, Right? living in light of eternity, having an eternal perspective. Paul said, Christ, if he brings only temporary hope, we are the most miserable people on the planet. And I would agree. It's more than just the hope to get through this next season, to get through tax season, to get through this year of your child struggle, to get through this next stage in the transition of your marriage or whatever it is. Most people, when they, uh, they don't wear parachutes, because of comfortability. Matter of fact, they're quite uncomfortable. They wear them for security. And so many Christians have ditched their parachutes because it didn't bring them happiness on this side of life. God is 
not near as interested in pacifying or pleasing us with abundant life as he is protecting us and preparing us for eternal life. So what you're going to read today is what is expected in the last days. Let's start in verse 18 of chapter 2. Nine marvelous things God will do at the end of days. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land. That's why he's zealous, actually, it's his. Right? And we'll have pity on his people. That's why he's zealous and jealous, because as you are his, he owns you, and he wants you to be his and his alone. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, oil. You will be satisfied and full with them. Right? That was destroyed by the locust, is now restored agricultural blessing. I will never again, if you're going to circle a phrase in verse 19, circle that. There will come a day when he will never again do the things, allow the things that we see on this planet. Talking about the end of days. I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, Israel. I will remove the northern army far from you. Military protection. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, its vanguard into the eastern sea, its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up. Locusts, carcasses, army carcasses is what he had. Death is all around. And he says, for it has done great things. The tragedies of this planet have done unbelievably horrible things, and the stench of death and the stench of war comes up and it rises up and it's the end of it all. In other words, he's pointing to the battle of Armageddon. He's pointing to the final huge war, war, whatever, the final battle. Verse 21, here's what that produces. And he adds, do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Now that sounds strange. He repeated the phrase, for the Lord has done great things, but what he's talked about is this massive army military adventure, this push to destroy the nations. The battle of Armageddon is meant to make you think through your fears, your things that rejoice. The greatness of God is working behind the scenes, and he bleeds them to this place where the nations are destroyed. You're going to see that in the next chapter. How does that help you not fear? If you see a massive world war that destroys all the enemies of God, and the blood has piled up, and as we see in the book of Revelation, the carrion birds are called, how does that bring you to be able to say, verse 21, do not fear, rejoice and be glad? Well, it's a perspective thing. Uh, I think in our world, on a Valentine's week, we, we emphasize the love of God so much that we de-emphasize the wrath of God. Uh, wrath is necessary for love. If you do not hate the things that hurt the ones you love, you're not really loving. And God hates the things that hurt his land, his people, his lovers. And in wrath, he will take it out. He will take out the trash of this world. And that is hard for our American minds to get through because we, we, we overemphasize love to the point of de-emphasizing God's wrath. And this is a text that God will make all scores even. He will get even. He will, be, he will have vengeance. He will level the score. However you want to say it, he will take it. And he will do with it what needs to be done. Verse 22, do not fear beasts of the field, animals. For the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the trees have borne its fruit. The fig trees and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, whether in 
army prosperity or in agricultural animal prosperity, be glad in the Lord your God. He has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rains as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow, the new wine and the oil. He's just listing out the marvelous things he will do at the end of days. Then, I love that, this is a great verse. Then I will make up for, to you for the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, the gnawing locusts, everything you've, the locusts have eaten will be returned. My great army, which I sent among you, I'm gonna do it through military might. This is not the Jesus of Christmas. We're gonna study this in just a little bit, Revelation 19. This, this restoration of all things comes through the sword, not through the cross. Okay, because at this point, the patience of God's love has run out. We always add, we talk about God is all loving, God is all knowing, God is everywhere present, but there's no omniverse in scripture of God's patience. God is not all patient. There comes a time when all this sin, all this evil that has gone unseen, un, unhandled, hasn't gone unseen, it's gone unhandled, that God deals with evil. This is a text that shows us that we can trust the Lord with the evil of this world. And so if you're looking at the evil of this world and it's causing you to have an ulcer, a spiritual, emotional, economic ulcer, all right, God handles it. He deals with it. God is not aloof. God is not a toothless God. He has teeth. And here you see it. He says, I will restore all things. Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, which will prompt you. Look at the rest of verse 26. Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people will never, everybody say never, never. At this point, never again will people be put to shame who are his followers. We might be put to shame now. We might be ridiculed. We might be made a fun of. You might be seen as a Neanderthal, pre-critical hick who comes to worship a God who died on a cross 2,000 years ago, and the world might say that to you, but at this point in history, there will be no more shame for the follower of Jesus because Jesus will be seen for who he is. Now, my people will never again be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. Of course, ultimately the context, let's be careful. The context here is for Israel. Israel has been the laughing stock of the nations. They've been kicked out of every nation. Anti-Semitism has spread across this planet. They have been the most ridiculed, dispersed. Up until 1948, they didn't have their own land. Almost you know, 1900 plus years, they didn't have their own land. And they have been beat up, they've been bruised, they've been killed, they've been, there's been genocide towards them, right? There's been ethnic cleansing towards Jews. There's been, they, they have received the ugly end of prejudice, the stick of prejudice, the stick of, of political intrigue. They have been, um, they have been rounded up and put in concentration camps and ridiculed on levels that this world has never seen. There will come a day when Israel will be vindicated and God will come alongside of them. We know this as the time of tribulation. It's a seven-year period of time where God will come alongside of his true Israel and he will rescue the whole nation of true Israel where Romans then can say all Israel will be rescued together as a nation. Right now, it's a political entity, the nation Israel. 
And this day of this, this thing that leads up to the battle of Armageddon, it will be spiritual Israel will be rescued. They will be his people and they, he will be their God and they will, there will be rescue and they will never again be put to shame. All right, so that is somewhat a promise of the past. Now we shift in verse 28. It will come about after this. There's a future shift in verse 28. The day the Lord has been typified in Israel's story. Here's the day the Lord prophesied. If you're new with us, you didn't come last week. The phrase that makes Joel so important is this phrase, the day of the Lord. It's mentioned five times. It points ultimately to the day of tribulation, a seven-year period that Daniel says will resolve all prophecy. All prophecy will be resolved at the seven-year period of time. It will end with, on the end of the seventh year, a battle called the Battle of Armageddon, where all the nations will rise up against God and against the nation Israel, and Jesus will come, and he will be the only one fighting in that battle, winning the battle. You're going to catch that here in a little bit. But what I want you to notice in the next verses is the phases, right? There's going to be phases. The first phase that we know we are in the end of days is what we're about to read, verse 28. It will come about after that, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Literally, it says all flesh. He will give more than what we've just seen in those previous verses. He will pour out his spirit. The promises of future glory is that all will be indwelt by his spirit, all believers all believers, next verse, next part, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. There will be a supernatural flow of revelation. The prophetic gifts will be given where people will speak the truth of God's word. Now, this sound familiar? It should. Peter in Acts chapter 2 quotes Joel here. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 21, he uses uh, this phrase to say on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes upon the the 70 or so that are there, the 120 or so that are there, when the Spirit comes upon them in flames of fire, tongues of fire, Peter says, the day of Joel, this this prophecy has come to, he says, Joel's prophecy uh, is that he spoke of this day. He doesn't say, Peter doesn't say, Joel's prophecy was fulfilled in in Acts chapter 2. He says, This is that which was spoken by Joel. So in Peter's mind, the whole prophecy of Joel wasn't fulfilled at Pentecost. It just is pointing to that the spirit that that was poured out in Acts chapter 2 was the spirit that Joel talked about. Okay, This is that which Joel spoke of, this outward pouring of the spirit into the hearts of people. So the full prophecy of Joel takes until the battle of Armageddon to fulfill. So keep reading. Verse 29, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. In other words, it, this, this uh, extensive outpouring of the spirit will signal the coming of the end of days, right? And we are in the age of the spirit, that the spirit of God isn't just poured out in pastors and in priests and in religious leaders. It's poured out in everyone, sons and daughters, slaves and free men, people in high levels of hierarchy, low levels of hierarchy, all have revelation in their heart. We saw that as part of the new covenant. Verse 30, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke, all effects of warfare. The sun will be turned into darkness, a signal of doom, and the moon into blood, and the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. All right, so let's stop here. 
in the phases of God's work, the first phase that we see is the Spirit of the Lord. It is us as followers of Jesus leaning not just on pastors and spiritual leaders, but we lean uniquely and solely, really, at the level of the spiritual life on the Spirit. So if you're taking notes, leaning on the Spirit is who the delivered one is. If you've been delivered in your life, how do you respond to your deliverance? If God has rescued you from that addiction, if God has rescued your marriage from that doomsday of divorce, God wants you to lean on His Spirit. This is the mark of the day of the Lord in your life, that you are a part of His kingdom plan. So in your listening guide there, right, here's real hope. Are you delivered enough to sense the power and the prompting of God's Spirit within you? If you have gone through a time of deliverance in the last year, the last week, the last 10 years, has it made you more spiritual? I hope it has. That means you've learned and you've leaned into what God is doing. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with desperation and deliverance? Well, my mind goes as a cross-reference to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Listen to this. In the same way, the Spirit in suffering helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I have been more spiritual in my pain and in my desperation than any other time in my life. When I felt his presence, I felt his power, I felt his words, I prayed things that I had never prayed. I cried out to God that I had it in a way that I hadn't before, and it marked me, and it changed me forever. If you've had a come to Jesus experience recently where you've, you've come to him on your hands and knees and he's embraced you and interacted with you, you walk away more spiritual than before. That is a mark of true revival in your life. Okay? So that's huge. That's not where he camps out, but I think it's interesting that he begins there. He's going to camp out in chapter 3 on this battle of Armageddon. And I, I doubt this week you didn't think about the battle of Armageddon all week. I bet that wasn't on your mind at all. But I like how he starts here because I hope that the Holy Spirit was on your mind this week. That you needed the Spirit to get through what you went through. Because that's where he starts and that's where we need to be. Now he goes, the second thing we saw in, in verse 30 is that he goes to this thing called the day of the Lord and the signs that come with it. Keep reading. The sun and moon turned to darkness, moon into blood. Great and awesome day of the Lord. His point here in verse 31 is that his people should interpret all these signs of war and in in this, this decay that we see in our culture across the planet as a precursor of their final and full deliverance. We don't look at all the things that are happening on this planet that are just so bad and so horrible, and we look at them and just, woe is me, and we weep. That, that isn't the heart of the Christian who's tuned in and who's clued in. If you're clued in, you know that those rumblings are birth pains for a baby to be born. And that baby isn't baby Jesus, it's King Jesus. And he comes with a sword. And all that rumbling, all those war drums hitting on this planet are meant to give you the kind of freedom, the kind of lack of fear that you need to push forward in your life. It trains you. 
to know that the battles you fight in your parenting, in your marriage, in your life, you fight not for victory, but from victory, that Jesus has already won, it's as good as done, that the battles of, of the nations have already been won, that is a whole different posture. Have you been trained in that way of thinking? That you already have victory? Yes, Satan is a formidable foe, but he's a defeated foe. And the battle of Armageddon points to that. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And the day the Lord says, I'm excited about the signs that he's coming. Uh, my, my sister is going into labor this week. She's being induced, and she's already had. She lives in the Dallas area, and she's already had some contractions. I'm excited to see I don't, they don't know what sex, niece, nephew. I'm excited to see my niece or nephew. She's on bed rest in the hospital. Pray for her. It's a little scary there. Blood pressure's up. But, you know, with all that pain that comes to the birth of a baby, we are excited about the baby. And the pains of this nation, the pains of this world, the struggles that we see across the Wall Street Journal, across the, the tabloids, across all the the, the articles and the newspapers and the blogs and the social media, all that, 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 for the Christian, we look at that and we say, the baby's coming, Jesus is coming. That's this, verse 32, and it will come about when you know that, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. If you see the signs of God taking this planet by storm and the war drums beating, what do you do? You call upon him. Romans eleven twenty six. all Israel will be delivered from this terrible tribulation. Romans 10, 13, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be rescued. When you see the signs, you sense the spirit and you see the signs, what do you do? Right, what do you do? You, you, you're ready, you, you engage, you look around what's going, going on around you and you prepare yourself. Parents, you don't look to your kids and panic. You give them perspective. God's in control. God's going to handle it. God's got it already handled. He's, it's as good as done. You know, there's a, a theme here in all Scripture that the battle has already, it's as good as won. And in chapter 3, you're going to see what I sense as I read chapter 3 is the confidence of God. When you read Revelation 19, which we'll do in a second, you see the confidence of God. Mom and dad, do you give your kids confidence when it comes to world events? Or do they see you as somebody who is full of fear of what's happening? I think when you move from leaning on the Spirit, you move to looking for signs, how you react, how you respond. This whole series through the Minor Prophets is called Respond. How you respond to the signs as you read the newspapers, how you respond as you watch the headline news, how you respond says a lot about your faith. The Old Testament passages that deal with the day of the Lord, there's a sense of imminence, nearness, expectation, and victory. So let's look at Revelation chapter 19. Turn there with me. Revelation 19. Into your Bible. Let's start in verse 11. You know, when you're omnipotent, you don't have to be humble, right? And God approaches this, Jesus approaches this in a way that just sounds so arrogant. It's like the, 
quarterback spiking the ball, Tom Brady spiking the ball at the beginning of the Super Bowl, right? But again, if you're omnipotent, you don't have to be, you're, you don't have to be humble. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. In the Greco-Roman world, the white horse was the victor's horse. He comes into the battle spiking the ball. And he who sat on it is called. He's going to give four names of Jesus in this battle of Armageddon. He is called faithful and true. All questions are answered at this day. At this day, the battle of Armageddon, God's divine purposes are all seen for what they are. He is faithful and true. All of God's purposes, all his promises in Jesus are yes. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire, right? He, 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 none can hide from him at this point. He is judge. And on his head are many diadems, a, a gold band that says, in this case, his name is king of kings. He has a many diadems, and he has a name written on it. Look at this, second name, that which no one knows except him. We believe this is the pre-incarnate name. What did they call Jesus before he came as baby Jesus? What was his name? As eternal son of God, what was his name? No one knows it until this day. At the battle of Armageddon, you see his pre-incarnate name. Except himself, he knows it. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Wow, that's not Christmas, right? He has slain his enemies to the point that the train of his robe, the end of his robe is thick with blood because he's killed people. Can you think of Jesus as killing people? Here, Jesus kills people. He is clothed with robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. He tells us who God is. This is the name of his incarnation. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We saw this up in verse 8. This is the church. The church is behind him. And they're made ready. They were following him on white horses in triumph. You're going to be there. You're going to be at this battle behind Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. He's the only one that fights here. This isn't a machaira, a little dagger. This is the word romphira. It's a Thracian execution sword. You don't hear this preached often in church. Jesus comes as executioner, judge, jury. So that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Sounds like Psalm 2. The grapes of wrath have been trodden under feet and they're ready to be fermented. And he does that. And on his robe, here's the fourth name, on his robe and on his thigh, that thigh is the place of strength, he has a name written, King of Kings. This is the name of his second coming. The exaltation on the earth as Jesus is King of Kings and he takes the planet by force. Now, previous in Revelation 19, we saw the wedding supper of the Lamb where all the bride of Christ is in a final communion service. We all come to the wedding supper and we're thoroughly married to Jesus. Here's another feast. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying, all to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for a great supper of God. Another feast so that you may eat the flesh of kings, humans, 
and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great, carrying birds, birds here. That's nasty. Enemies never farewell. When you're an enemy of God, you do not farewell. Goliath doesn't farewell. Saul doesn't farewell. Absalom doesn't farewell. Canaan, Ahab, Jezebel, do not be an enemy of God. That's what happens to his enemies. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. God always gets rid of his enemies. He hasn't done it yet, but that doesn't mean he's not gonna do it. And this is the day. God deals with it, dealt with my evil on a cross, but here he deals with the evil of this nation, these nations in one last great battle. He deals with my evil on a cross. He deals with their evil through vultures. Now, is that the picture of Jesus that you have in your brain? I want you to turn to another passage. Go to Luke 21. Go to Luke 21. Talking about signs here. Luke 21, starting in verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. Have you found it? Luke 21, 25. And on the earth, dis, dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves. I think we're already seeing that. Men fainting from fear and expectations of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is the battle of Armageddon at the end of the second half of tribulation. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads in other words, you don't mope, you don't weep, you're proud of what Jesus is doing here. You hear Jesus doing all this war and killing all these people. Are you, are you wanting to apologize for that? Scriptures say you're to cheer him on in that because he deals with evil. Now look at this. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now when you hear the word redemption, Fred Patterson, you hear the word redemption, you look backwards, right? This text, what? Looks forward. Your deliverance trains you. Your deliverance in your, your sin struggle, in your marriage struggles, your deliverance in your parenting struggle, it trains you to look forward to a future deliverance, and you're to focus your mind on that. Jesus wins. You fight from victory. This deliverance is future looking. It, it looks to the crown, not the cross. How much time do you spend looking back to the cross versus the forward to the crown that Jesus has? Joel? Joel says you need to train your mind to think about the battle of Armageddon daily, to think that Jesus wins. Go back to Joel. Let's read the rest of this. Now that you've got that in your heart and mind, chapter 3 makes a lot more sense. Read verse 32 again. And it will come about, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion, Zion and in Jerusalem... There will be those who escape, for the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, future, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, makes it clear that Jews will be back in their land. 
I will gather all the nations. Today, there's about 238 of them. I gather all the nations, all gathered to fight Israel and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We don't know where this is. We believe, as most interpreters, this is the battle of Armageddon. Right? The, signature, the significance here is that it means, Jehoshaphat means the Lord is judge. So that pain that you think somebody got away with, that false accusation that somebody got away with, that hurt, that bullying, that ISIS genocide, that murder, whatever it is that weighs heavy on your heart, that, that will be dealt with. God will be dealing with that at this day. Look at this. And I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. He lists their crimes. The nations have scattered the Israelites among the nations. They've kicked them out of land. They have divided up my land, God says. They divided up Jerusalem and Israel. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. This is the sex trade. Sex trade. Verse 4, moreover, who are you to me, O Tyre, Zion, all the regions of Philistia? So now he speaks to the Philistians and the Phoenicians. Are you rending me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will recompense you on your head. What, what is he saying here? He says there's payback coming. And the Phoenician and Philistinian, uh, Philistinian sex trade, there's going to be payback. If you struggle in... And, and thinking through all the wickedness of this world, and especially, I don't know if there's one in my heart that gives me an ulcer greater than this child sex trade. He says, there will be payback. They don't get away with it. They do not get away with it. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temple, the Phoenicians and the Philistians sacked the area. They stole the wealth of Israel. You sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, slavery. They were involved in the slave trade. Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. If you see the word recompense, think payback. I'm going to put payback on your head. We'll see this next week in Amos chapter 1 verse 6. Payback is coming. Verse 7, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans and to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. That's a famous verse. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man, a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. In other words, you want to step up to the big buck? You want to step up to the bear? You want to fight me? Step up. Right? Get all your weapons and you come to the battle of Armageddon and we'll see who wins. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Verse 12, let the nations be aroused and come up to the battle of Armageddon, to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So what is this? Three valleys. We're going to see three valleys. This first valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley of war. And you see Jesus here. Are you looking forward to Jesus, the warrior? Have you even thought of that? The Bible's full of that language. 
40% of your Bible is unfulfilled prophecy pointing to this battle where Jesus fights and wins. No, no, we are to look forward to this Jesus as warrior. Are you delivered enough? Are you, has Jesus delivered you enough to fight alongside of Christ in his kingdom agenda? You know where I see this in your parenting or my parenting? Is in our prayers. Parents, do you, in your pain and your struggles, when you turn on the news, do you pray for God's purposes to be done? Or is it more lamenting and just criticism and whining? No, turn your prayers. If Jesus is truly warrior who wins, he wins, he wins, then your prayers ought to be affected by that. And it'll show up in your parenting. Always, always, listen to this, contrary to much emphasis today in the evangelical church, true prayer, like true worship, centers on God's glory, not man's need. True prayer focuses on thy name, thy kingdom come. As you pray in light of verses 1 through 12, you pray God's kingdom come, Jesus take this planet. Look at the rest of verse 12. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now we're moving from warrior to judge. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, a description of Armageddon. Come tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of, what does it say? Look at your Bible. Different valley here, the valley of decision. This isn't make a decision for the Lord. <laughs> This suggests, in its root word, suggests threshing. The threshing of judgment is here. The valley of decision is that trial, jury, done. God has delivered it. The, the, the sentence is being read, and God is delivering that sentence. The valley of decision. Are you looking forward? Have you been delivered enough to look forward to Jesus as judge? Not just warrior, but judge? Christ will defend his land, he will defend his people, he will defend his holy city. Are you on his side? Keep reading. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord. Here's the, the fifth time and final time this phrase is used in Joel. The, valley, uh, the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It's final judgment. The divine judge gives his verdict and it's execution time. The sun and moon grow dark, another ominous sign, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion. What is that? Circle verse 16. It's a battle cry and utters his voice from Jerusalem. You got John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only soul, son, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He gave in his first coming here. This is Joel 3, 16. For God so gave his warrior judging son that whosoever hears the roar from Zion as he utters his voice of judgment, you will find the kind of deliverance this planet desperately needs. Wow. And the heavens and the earth, they tremble, thunderous. And the Lord is a refuge to his people. He demonstrates it in two ways. He's a refuge and he, look at the rest, he's a stronghold to the sons of Israel. After this awesome display of power, it is those who are desperate for him, who have been delivered by him, that run into him like a strong tower, and they find him safe. Verse 17, it works. 
Then you, Israel, the nation Israel has a great time of revival at the battle of Armageddon. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, all Israel will be rescued. They will come in wholeness. They will come not in part, but in wholeness. And they will come to their Messiah whom they've pierced. They will look upon him whom they pierced and they will embrace Jesus fully. That's a great day. So Jerusalem will be holy and the strangers will pass through it no more. Verse 18, in that day when Messiah reigns over his people in the millennial kingdom, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will seemingly flow with water, milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go forth out of it from the house of the Lord to the water, to water the valley of Shittim. Literally, uh, this is translated acacia trees, acacias. He will water the valley of acacias. This is... In that age, this is paradise. This is like watering the valley of, of, uh, of you know, Destin Beach, right? This is a beautiful area, a paradise. What's he saying here is that the, this portion of the Kindron Valley, which flows, water flows through it to the, in this arid wilderness, it'll flow through to the Dead Sea, and it will turn something that is previously not that pretty into something gorgeous. The Valley of Acacias. Are you looking forward to this kingdom? Where this planet will be transformed, actually, verse chapter uh, 20 of Revelation says it will be done away with. An old planet, an old heaven will be destroyed, and a new heaven and a new earth will be given. And it will be paradise. Gold will be so cheap that we'll use it as road material. It'll be asphalt. It'll be so cheap. I'm looking forward to his kingdom. I have been delivered enough to look forward to his kingdom. And this is not the kingdom. This kingdom of this planet is not the kingdom. This is not the kingdom. Keep reading. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Why? Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah. Why will these nations be brought up to the bench of his judgment and be declared guilty and sentenced to death at the battle of Armageddon because of how they treated Israel? So should that affect our politics towards Israel? You better believe it should. Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose lands they have shed innocent blood, but Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations. This is a tough verse, last verse. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. It's a tough verse, but it ends with a truth that all this, this battle of Armageddon is payback. It's avenging. Reminds us of Ezekiel's final words. You remember how Ezekiel ends? And the name of the city from that day forth shall be, the Lord is there. This planet belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his, and he will take this planet. All right, so here's real hope. Are you delivered enough to fight alongside God, Christ, and his kingdom agenda? Are you delivered enough to judge the world events in light of Christ's kingdom agenda? Can you see world events and say, Jesus is doing something? And are you delivered enough in your life to look long and labor long for Christ's kingdom? As a, as a daily thought on the screen, are you delivered enough to feel the glory of Christ's future kingdom overshadowing your own agony? You had agony and desperation last week. You have deliverance today. And the deliverance overshadows the agony. No matter how bad your life is, the glory that's coming makes that look smaller. 
And that's the Christian. We are trained to see it that way. Mom and dad, are you in your prayer life, are you praising God or are you pouting in your prayers? It changes your prayer life. Praise him for what he's doing. Praise him for how he's going to solve all the world's problems at, towards this end of days, and it's as good as done. Jesus comes to the Super Bowl, and he spikes the ball. See, see, see with that kind of safety net, you can work in the most scary of places. Listen to this final little story. In 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge was completed. It cost $77 million, but it was completed in 1937 in two stages. The first was slow. The second was fast. The first stage, 23 men fell to their death, and the Golden Gate Bridge and its progress came to a halt. And at the time, somebody designed, brilliant idea, to design the world's most expensive net. In 1937, they built a net that cost $100,000. Guess what? That second phase, when the men saw that net, there was about um, 10 that fell into it. That was it. After that, everybody was more secure, and the work went 25% faster. They got it done under budget. You have a safety net. No matter how bad this planet gets, no matter how bad your life gets, Jesus wins. And that's meant to change your perspective. So I don't, I don't want to minimize the pain that you're going through. If you have received uh, the ugly end of a bad marriage, a bad financial uh, economy, a bad uh, health report, if you've received the ugly end of those sticks, I do not want to minimize it, but I want to maximize God's glory in the middle of it. The worst that can happen is you die and you go to heaven. When you look at your life and you look at all the pains, put it in the perspective of the battle of Armageddon. Jesus wins, Jesus wins, Jesus wins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we fight from victory because of what you've done, not for victory. <laughs> Lord, that's precious. That's precious to us because with us, we certainly understand in the personal application of Joel's message to us today that you send natural calamities when nations refuse to obey him. We see that all through this. When nations refuse to obey you, you send wars and poor crops and epidemics and earthquakes and storms. You are that sovereign. All of these can be used by you to bring people to their knees. God, you can even use little insects like we learned last week to do your will if men and women will not obey you. But our lives personally can often become dry and fruitless if we are out of your will. How important it is for us today to experience sincere, deep repentance, that you might forgive us and send your blessings again. But Lord, we look beyond desperation to deliverance, and we, we praise you for providing the net, of the safety net of the end of this story. We know how the story ends, and we need not be afraid. We rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, as warrior, as judge, and we embrace, we look forward to your kingdom. May we be forward-thinking in our redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you. Be people that look forward today, all right? God bless.